everyone. I'm Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. Step back in time with me as we learn about some of the most infamous and maligned women in history. Speaking with leading experts, I will discuss these women's backstories and the circumstances that gave them the title of Wicked. In this season of Wicked Women, I will be focusing on some well-known and some lesser-known women in history who have acquired an unsavory reputation. In the end, this podcast does not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but it is also not looking to completely villainize them. Instead, I hope this can be a conversation starter on the complicated legacies prescribed to women in history. In today's episode, I will be analyzing Tsarina Elizaveta Petrovna, daughter of Peter the Great and Catherine I. Discussing Elizaveta or Elizabeth's life and legacy with me today will be author Ellen Alpston, best known for her two novels on Elizabeth and her mother Catherine I, titled Tsarina and the Tsarina's Daughter. Continue listening to learn more. A note on titles. Throughout the episode, Elizabeth is referred to as both the Tsarina and the Empress. Both are appropriate terms for her role as monarch of Russia. You are all probably familiar with Catherine the Great, Empress of Russia. She has dominated the popular imagination on par with Elizabeth I. However, Catherine was not the first woman to hold the title of Empress or Tsarina in Russia. She wasn't even the second. The 16th century in Russia witnessed not one, but four different empresses who ruled in their own right. It was a century dominated by female rule, but later generations pelted every one of the Russian Tsarinas, including Catherine the Great, with scandalous rumors of sexual immorality, political corruption, and regicide. When Catherine the Great ascended the throne, she might have looked back on the three previous empresses' reigns for guidance and warning. While Catherine would have gone to the history books about Catherine I and Anna I, she witnessed the reign of Empress Elizaveta Petrovna firsthand. Elizaveta, or Elizabeth, was the daughter of Peter the Great and his history-making wife, Catherine I, believed to have risen from being a serf to becoming empress in her own right. Elizabeth was not raised to be ruler. There were plenty of distant male relatives to take on the mantle of Tsar, but as we'll discuss later in this episode, Elizabeth crawled through heartbreak, tragedy, and abuse to eventually be crowned Empress of Russia. However, her reign, much like the other 16th century empresses, has been marred by scandal. The glorious and long reign of Catherine the Great has overshadowed that of Elizabeth. In addition, Catherine made sure to steer the narrative of her relationship with Elizabeth often painting the Empress as a heartless and cold manipulator. Novels, films, and television shows often portray Elizabeth as such, but she was far more capable and accomplished than she is often given credit for. Elizabeth was born at Kolomenskoya on December 18, 1709, to Tsar Peter the Great and his wife, a former serf, Catherine. Her parents were not formally married at the time of Elizabeth's birth, but in February of 1712, Peter the Great married Catherine and legitimized their offspring. Elizabeth was a favorite of her father, whom she resembled in both looks and temperament. Peter used to boast that he loved his daughters like his own soul. 
However, Peter often neglected Elizabeth's education in the belief that she would become nothing more than a marriage pawn on the European stage. Peter had a son and heir from his first marriage, so there was no indication that Elizabeth would ever rise to the role she would one day inhabit. Elizabeth idolized her father, despite his neglect, for her entire life. This is Ellen Alpston on Elizabeth's early years. It must be her childhood, because it's so interesting. Obviously, she's the daughter of Peter the Great and Catherine I of Russia. And despite her father being this huge reformer who just dragged his country forward, really, to something that can be compared to the Middle Ages and who forced his young people to travel abroad and to study and who established schools, actually, the education for these only two surviving of his 15 children, her and her sister Anna, was really haphazard. So as, as young girls, loneliness was really their most obvious and most current companion. And they grew up in this far-flung timber palace with some more or less hand-picked staff, you know, a Finnish Karelian nanny. Then later, Peter the Great's sister-in-law took care of them. But I thought, God... In a, in a time, and especially for him, where, where children were so valuable and so sought after, and then he has only these two girls, and then he doesn't actually look after them properly. Uh, but of course, you know what it's like. If there's somebody you adore and they don't look after you, 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 you love them the more. So I try to understand this, and equally the relationship to the parents with that horrible story, what happened to her half-brother. How do you deal with that? He is, he is full, full of contradictions and full of ironies, a, a hugely, hugely traumatized character. But, and at times when I wrote Zarina, I really had to put him in the corner and said, this book is not about you. But it's very, very hard to do because everything happens. Of course, he's like a mirror. Everything happens in reflection of him. And even for, less for the Zarina's daughter, because there was more original source material around for Elizabeth because she reigned for 20 years and was a very important um, empress. But for Catherine I, because she mostly exists in the mirror of him. And so getting her out of there and making her this three-dimensional figure, that was the biggest challenge there, which was easier for Elizabeth because she's just so flesh and blood. <laughs> the first 15 years of Elizabeth's life passed similarly to many royal princesses of the era. Marriage proposals came and went from members of Europe's aristocracy, with Peter the Great finally settling on Charles Frederick, Duke of Holstein Gottorp, a claimant for the Swedish throne for his eldest daughter Anna, and Charles Augustus of Holstein Gottorp for Elizabeth. It also appears that in his later life, Peter began to consider the potential of one of his daughters ruling Russia. Here is Ellen. It's certainly something he took into account when he already when he crowned the mother. And then actually two years before his death, he did make his two daughters the crown princesses of Russia because he realized he would not have a son and heir um, anymore. So, of course, the possibility of it happening was always there. And the fact that somebody who devoted their whole being and their every waking hour to furthering his nation it is just stunning that he died without deciding upon an heir it's it, it, it's incredible something so important and you're right you can see how torn he was about this question to the very end 
And that was definitely one of the problems too, when it, it's sort of a double, it's like a, a, a Janos faced fact. I think that Serena's Daughter is the first novel about these early years of Elizabeth because it is one of the most complicated and complex moments in Russian history that is so rich in complexities and, and complications. And when Peter the Great died, the country just was like lamed with shock and, and plunged into this vacuum of power. And in the following five years, the throne was orphaned three times alone. And for a novelist to sort of whittle that down into a plot that, you know, a reader who's not a Russophile, already the names demand a lot from my readers. <laughs> that, that, was, that was a huge challenge, I felt. I hope I've managed. <laughs> But in 1725, before either marriage could go forward, Peter the Great died after a long battle with poor health. With the death of her father, Elizabeth's life took a drastic turn that could never have been foreseen. Elizabeth had witnessed the continual rise of her mother Catherine throughout her childhood, culminating in her coronation as Peter's consort and Tsarina in 1724. When Peter died, he did so without proclaiming an heir, a reality that could have sent the country into chaos and civil war. Catherine, alongside her trusted advisor Alexander Menshikov, staged a coup in which Catherine ascended the throne as the first woman to rule in her own right in Russian history. Catherine is a fascinating historical character deserving of her own episode, but she will not be spoken about in much depth here. To find out more, I'll put resources on my website. With the rise of Tsarina Catherine I, Elizabeth would have witnessed firsthand a woman's ability to fill a role assumed to only be possible for men, but she also would have been witness to men's manipulation of her mother during her reign, often seen as a puppet monarchy, with Menshikov at its center. In 1726, Catherine I brought Charles Augustus to Russia to meet her daughter. Elizabeth seemed taken with Charles, but before an engagement could be announced, Catherine I caught a chill that proved to be fatal. After only 27 months on the throne, Catherine I died on May 17, 1727. In the wake of her mother's death, Elizabeth was dealt another blow when her betrothed caught smallpox and died two weeks after Catherine. After the death of the Empress, the Russian throne passed to Peter the Great's grandson from his first marriage, who was later crowned Tsar Peter II. In a matter of weeks, Elizabeth had lost her mother, her fiancé, and any political influence she may have wielded. Peter II soon took interest in Elizabeth, and she became a fixture at his court. It appears that at this point, Elizabeth took no interest in political pursuits, instead taking pleasure in court life and the men around her. Elizabeth once wrote that she was content only when she was in love, and it is this period of time that started the rumors of Elizabeth's sexual exploits. In 1730, the young Peter II became increasingly ill. When pressed to make her advance on the throne, Elizabeth refused. On the night of January 11th, Peter II died of smallpox. When awoken and urged to take her rightful place as Russia's new ruler, Elizabeth went back to sleep. In her place, her cousin, Anna Ionova, the daughter of Peter the Great's brother, was proclaimed empress. Years later, Elizabeth asserted that she never regretted the decision to refuse the throne in 1730, stating, I was too young then. I'm very glad that I did not assert my right to the throne earlier. I was too young, 
and my people would have never borne with me. Anna remained weary of Elizabeth throughout her reign, and the continuous tension at court drove Elizabeth to seek refuge on her country estates. It was here that she began to assert a new political image amongst the Russian people. As Ella points out, She was shockingly open about it. She lived out in the countryside in Ismailov and had sort of this circle where she actually then very cleverly too, if you want to, she was the first people's princess, you know, this title that was later taken by Diana, Princess of Wales, because as Russia, almost like in, in, in Goethe's The Magician's Apprentice, Peter the Great had called in all these Europeans, all these forces that were supposed to be for good. But suddenly, you know, tables turned and Russia was almost suffocated. Everything that was Russian was threatened by all these foreigners who were most, mostly gold diggers and fortune hunters, of course, who knew they were in for a quick buck here and uh, could could make things happen. And so she very cleverly out in that mini court in Ismailov, where she lived with her lovers who were all staunch supporters. I mean, they knew on which side their bread was buttered on should she become empress. Um, she very cleverly accentuated everything that was Russian. She dressed in a Russian way. She danced Russian dances. She sang Russian uh, songs. She only ate Russian food. And the Russians got that. Despite long before living before, you know, uh, sort of mass media, word got out. And especially then the support of the army that she gained too, probably cleverly too, because a good half a dozen of these soldiers had been her lovers. And they too knew that they were riches to be had and fortunes to be made if, if, if she became empress. She actually, she actually watched very closely what was happening. And the same way as Elizabeth had watched before her cousin Anna. And she even said to Catherine, um, Catherine in, the, in, in, the, in her memoirs, in her diaries, Elizabeth scolds her and said, I would have never dared to behave like that at the court of Empress Anna because I was always in danger. Um, when Catherine is kind of wanton, she makes debts and she tries to buy friends and Elizabeth ticks her off. So I am, yes, Catherine took very, very careful note of what was happening. Elizabeth's popularity and seemingly scandalous lifestyle antagonized Anna, creating a relationship filled with personal barbs and manipulation. Here's Ella again. So with the Empress Anna, who was the Empress before Elizabeth, and who actually is, even though I would not write a standalone novel about her, she's a huge and fascinating character, I hope, in The Tsarina's Daughter. And she certainly has the most chilling comeback in history. <laughs> and then it's really this profoundly sinister person um, who in the same time made a lot of things possible in Russia for which Russia today stands for. You know, she introduced the circus, she introduced the ballet, she introduced opera. So all these passions that Russia has today, she brought in from the West with, with, with her lover. So that is another person. And, and I think just for her, it's worth reading the Tsarina's daughter. And of course, there, there's, there's a massive moment of surprise um, <laughs> when, when, when she comes to the throne. But I loved reading about her and I loved trying to get her to life you know that it's all these characters are almost like russia itself they sort of very casually combine these seemingly insurmountable opposites anna made it increasingly difficult for any marriage prospects to come elizabeth's way either through retaliation political maneuvering genuine feeling or a bit of each elizabeth began finding solace from anna's bullying in the arms of army officers 
one of these men would become a fixture in the rest of Elizabeth's life, a man of humble origin named Alexei Ruzumovsky. Elizabeth seemed to exhibit a similar patience and political ingenuity as another famous Elizabeth, Elizabeth I of England. In a similar fashion to Elizabeth I's behavior under the reign of her sister Mary I, Elizabeth Petrovna played a delicate game of court maneuvering. Before Anna I, she was all deference and loyalty, but behind closed doors, she began to dream of a day that she could become empress in Anna's stead. However, more doubt was placed on Elizabeth's chance of being empress when Anna brought her niece, Anna Leopoldovna, to Russia and quickly married her off to a German prince, despite Anna Leopoldovna's fierce refusal. In 1740, Anna Leopoldovna gave birth to a son, whom the empress named Ivan. Barely a month after Ivan's birth, Anna suffered a stroke. Afterwards, she quickly named Ivan her heir, before passing away on October 28, 1740. Ivan was declared Tsar Ivan VI, with his mother, Anna Leopoldovna, acting as regent. Elizabeth swore allegiance to the young Tsar, being denied the role of empress for a third time. Elizabeth continued to enjoy a relatively happy life with Alexis Rosomovsky and expanded her influence with the Russian military. By February 1741, something seems to have shifted in court dynamics, because Anna Leopoldovna ordered that Elizabeth be put under surveillance. The following month saw Elizabeth's freedom of movement greatly reduced, and Anna Leopoldovna begin to waver under constant urgings to arrest Elizabeth and send her to a convent. It is during this time that one of the most enduring legends around Elizabeth began. According to Russian historians of the time, Elizabeth's trusted advisor, Dr. Lestok, came to her room on the morning of November 24, 1741, and presented her with a card. The card had a crown on one side and a nun's veil on the other. Looking up from the card, Dr. Lestok stated, Take your choice, my lady. It was supposedly at this point that Elizabeth finally decided to take her place as Russia's new Tsarina. After midnight on the 25th of November, 1741, Elizabeth arrived at the barracks of the Priobrzynski guards and cried out, You know whose daughter I am. Follow me. Her years of cultivating relationships within the military paid off, as the guards cheered and yelled, We'll die for your majesty and the motherland. Elizabeth, along with the soldiers of the Priobrzynski Guard, entered the Winter Palace without protest, walking directly into Anna Leopoldovna's bedroom to awaken and then arrest her. Elizabeth then entered the nursery of Ivan VI, took the sleeping infant in her arms, and stated, You're not guilty of anything. Despite this, the young infant was placed under arrest and taken to a secure location. The coup lasted only three hours with no bloodshed. Elizabeth was now the Tsarina of Russia. Ivan VI, only 15 months old at the time of the coup, haunted Elizabeth for the rest of her life. Originally intending to send him into exile along with his parents, she decided it was too risky to have a living Tsar outside of Russia. Ivan lived the rest of his life in prison, known only as that certain prisoner. He would die in 1761 during a supposed escape attempt under the reign of Catherine the Great. 
With Ivan VI out of the way, it became clear to Elizabeth that she needed a new acknowledged heir to dissuade any coups in Ivan's favor. She chose the son of her beloved sister Anne, a 14-year-old boy named Karl Peter Ulrich, a grandson of Peter the Great and a potential heir to both Russia and Sweden. Karl, now titled Peter Fyodorovich, arrived in Russia in 1742, just as Elizabeth's coronation celebrations began. With her coronation complete and an heir waiting in the wings, Elizabeth's reign would have seemed to start with great promise, but the boy she brought to secure her own dynasty would help to tarnish her legacy. It isn't hard to imagine Elizabeth's disappointment in Peter. Peter, never a strong intellectual, scorned the Russian language and culture, preferring to emulate the Prussians in all things. In addition, Peter was constantly ill and suffered mental and physical torment under his tutor, Otto Brumer. However, Peter was a better heir than the alternative, Ivan VI. So Elizabeth tried to make do and mold Peter into her ideal czar. In the end, she would later come to write in a letter to Alexis Rusomovsky, My nephew's a monster. The devil take him. Alexis Rusomovsky continued to enjoy favor from the new empress throughout her reign, becoming known as the Emperor of the Night. Rumors swirled around Elizabeth's scandalous relationship with her lover. Alexis enjoyed unparalleled access to the empress, and contemporaries and some later historians have questioned if they had a secret marriage ceremony sometime around 1742. Though devoted to Alexis, Elizabeth took numerous lovers throughout her reign, but rarely did any of them take a direct interest in her politics. Elizabeth's role as Tsarina of Russia won her many enemies amongst the male rulers of Europe. She was called an Oriental Sultana, a power-mad nymphomaniac, and the Messalina of the North, among other less savory terms. This hatred of female power would become a defining feature of the reign of Elizabeth's female successor, Catherine the Great, but it often appears as a recycling of terms used during Elizabeth's lifetime. Elizabeth knew that the only way to continue the Romanov dynasty was to have Peter marry and produce children to succeed him. It is at this point in 1744 that the woman who had become Elizabeth's rival entered the scene, a young Prussian princess named Sophia, known to history as Catherine the Great. It is an irony that the unassuming girl that Elizabeth brought to Russia as a way to ensure her dynasty's continuance also helped to bring about the destruction of Elizabeth's own legacy. As Ellen discusses... Definitely, she has been overshadowed by the one person she invited into Russia, by Catherine the Great, and of course, Catherine the Great's early diaries, which I've read as well, to, to see that mirror that reflects Elizabeth. She was not an easy customer, because next to being an empress, she equally always was a woman, and a very jealous woman as such. Um, who never married, who had her lovers, who almost like the evil queen in Snow White. She always wanted to be, you know, childish. She always wanted to be the most beautiful. And she passed the law that only she was allowed to wear pale pink. And when she caught another woman at a court ball who wore pale pink, she slapped her and tore hair from her head. So all, <laughs> so these are things that do not shed a very flattering light on her. But in the same time, I just find her... She's a bit of a Sansa Stark, if you are a Game of Thrones fan, who who grows from 
you know, this young, very insouciant and carefree and immensely spoiled person to a very strong and savvy survivor who to the end believes actually in the holiness of her blood and to the very end does not want to act even if it's to her own detriment and only when she sees it's all right to act she she does that i don't want to no spoilers she does that famous march on 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 the winter palace um and equally that quote of hers that she says i'm i'm, I'm 31 now and any earlier i would not have been ready so she was aware of her task of the enormity of it yeah, Catherine's diaries don't show her so much as brutal as as actually very primitive in a way. And the whole Russian court is very primitive. I mean, Catherine, I mean, nobody can even read or write here. And, uh, you know, they think that sort of playing a game of cards is the height of any intellectual occupation in an evening. Um, she certainly did not have a good reputation mostly because she equally she had she had invited um, inherited her her parents sensual sensual appetites and took her lovers perhaps lucky for her she was barren and never had a child because i almost felt when her cousin ruled the empress anna there was almost this hope that Elizabeth might fall pregnant and compromise herself completely and bowl herself out of succession. So to her luck, that actually never happened. Of course, that left her burdened then with having to, inviting sort of the young, young Peter in from Holstein and uh, Catherine the Great. So I don't know, this, this brutality, yeah, no, let, let's remember that she is the first ever ruler to abolish the um, capital punishment and, and the death sentence, which is an enormous step, even though, of course, you can always nout somebody to have the desired effect. But on paper, there was no more death sentence. In the years following Peter and Sophia's, now known as Catherine's, marriage, Catherine would go on to have three children, two of which were born during Elizabeth's reign. Catherine's first child, a son named Paul, was raised solely by Elizabeth. Catherine would never forgive Elizabeth for what she viewed as the abduction of her son. This animosity would help create Elizabeth's negative legacy during Catherine's reign. At the same time, despite the sense of anger and betrayal, it isn't hard to miss the staggering parallels between Elizabeth's attempt to raise Paul as her own and Catherine's later actions in raising Paul's children 23 years later. Despite the similarities between the two women's reigns, through Catherine's diaries and letters, Elizabeth often fills the role of antagonist within Catherine's narrative of her own time in Russia. Here's Ellen about how Catherine helped to create Elizabeth's legacy. That is definitely Catherine the Great's mediatic omnipresence because she's always the antagonist for because she ruled for another 17 years once Catherine the Great came into the country because she basically immediately invited Peter in and immediately decided he needed a bride and then went for this Protestant impoverished little German princess because she thought she would cause her the least trouble. Um, <laughs> She, she was quite mistaken and just the strength of character that Catherine had to bring up to actually survive in this viper nest of a court is stunning. Hats off to her. It's a much smaller story in Cope in Scope because it's court, it's only court intrigue. 
whilst in both Tarina and the Tarina's daughter, you have this whole country that is involved. These are double Cinderella stories. In Tsarina, you've got from serf to empress, from, you know, backward nation to the beginnings of the superpower. And then in Tsarina's daughter, actually, she falls from riches to rags and rises from rags to Romanov. And it's the same for Russia that is brought to the brink of demise and then is torn back and, and, and saved and protected by Elizabeth. Whilst the history of Catherine the Great or the story of Catherine the Great is very court intrigue, her husband, the soldiers, Russia is a little bit... Sort of the elephant in the room. In the 1750s, Elizabeth began suffering regularly from dizzy spells, and her health rapidly declined. On December 23, 1761, Elizabeth suffered a massive stroke. Despite this, Elizabeth remained lucid and died two days later, surrounded by Alexis, Rusomovsky, Catherine, and Peter. Elizabeth is often remembered for her fashion addiction, pride, and at times tyrannical control of court life. In addition, she is often compared, usually unfavorably, to Catherine the Great. Yet what is often forgotten is that Elizabeth was an incredibly popular Tsarina, who helped to restore Russian prestige and pride after years of uncertainty following the death of Peter the Great. She made numerous positive changes to Russian society, including founding Russia's first university and reorganizing Russia's law codes. While never formally abolishing the death penalty, Elizabeth would never sign a single death warrant during her reign. She would also continue her father's legacy of expanding Russia's territory and influence in Europe. While Catherine the Great is often the person who comes to mind when we think of Russian empresses, she was just one in an incredible lineage of female rule which dominated the 18th century. Here is Ellen discussing the unique female power structure in 18th century Russia. I mean, these were immense characters because we're really talking about the unique century of female reign in, in Russia flying in the face of a brutal patriarchy. And how did they make that happen? And that's mostly, you know, people say, oh, it's Arena my debut novel, of course, Catherine the Great. And then when I say, no, no, it's not Catherine the Great, zoom, the faces drop. And I say, no, but it's the woman who set the scene for everything that was to follow. Because without her, this illiterate serf, born out of wedlock, who rose to being Russia's first ruling empress, um, nothing like Catherine the Great would have ever happened. I mean, Catherine the Great has got this mediatic omnipresence. You really see her everywhere. There are all the time series, all the time films, to a point that I actually would hesitate to write a novel about her because she's been so exploited and, and overexposed. Um, and then even people who read Tsarina, and then they write in their reviews. <laughs> I mean, I'm grateful for any good review. But then if somebody writes in their review, wow, I did not know that Catherine the Great was a serf. Then I really feel like, schlup, schlup, could you please read me 500 pages again? <laughs> it really, it hits me straight in the heart. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't want to write, I don't want to write, um, the the umpteenth novel about Catherine the Great. I don't want to write another novel about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. I love these unexplored characters. As I said, I, I told you, I feel like Tutankhamun when he, no, not like Howard Carter when he discovered the, the tomb of Tutankhamun. It's just fantastic. Within Ellen's novels, she brings to life the story of Russia's lesser-known empresses 
Catherine I, and Elizabeth. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia has been rediscovering its imperial history. Here is Ellen. And it's only now that the Russians too discover their history anew. And I hope that my book helps. They aren't trans Funny enough, they aren't translated into Russian yet. So the Russians don't necessarily like it when foreigners go for their history. And even though Russian state TV ran two years ago, huh, before, <laughs> before uh, March into Ukraine, I had those associations. Um, they brought sort of then did a two minute clip on the on the books and their success because they sold in so many countries, but they're not translated into Russian yet. So we're waiting for that. Keep your fingers crossed. Their novels, sadly, I think about I once read when I was a teenager myself, I read a novel about the later Elizabeth and her love story with Razumovsky and if they uh, married in secret. But it was a very novel kind of out there. I remember it because it was so out there with sort of fantasy elements. And it's true that I myself actually now brought in the supernatural element of uh, the Leshy into the book. And that's very important because that Delphic prophecy she receives is almost like a dark choker of pearls, like a, like, a, like a rosary bead on which she can count off everything that happens to her in her life. And that's why I like the ending too, because she actually realized that the Leshy never wanted bad things for her. This was almost like a protection for her, saying, be aware, this is coming for you. You have to be ready. Then I read a lot of fairy tales actually to understand the imaginary of this people. And then something I realized is that none of the spirits in that mythological world is ever benevolent. And that struck me. I thought, what does that tell you about a people's and a country's relationship with its own nature and its own soul? Because everything is so brutal and so clear cut, everything it is life or it is death. And there's very little that is in between. Up to today, you know, there is that big saying, and that's a fabulous, fabulous quote to end on actually there is that saying of Pierre Bourdieu whom I had the privilege of studying under in, in Paris and he says the more it changes the more it stays the same and I think that's that's definitely the, the case for Russia In Ellen's opinion Catherine's version of Elizabeth is just a fragment of the narrative around this extraordinary and powerful woman. This is what Ellen thinks Elizabeth's legacy should be moving forward. That she was a woman who brought Russia back to its roots, that she saved it from being taken over by foreigners and who in the same time had the vision to invite a foreigner in and who then really, you know, opened Russia up, this first illuminated um, Empress that Catherine the Great was. So again, a fabulous contradiction. And it's a very good note to end on. <laughs>